Welcome to The Catch-Up, a Westwood Westwood podcast. And now your host, Teddy Tutson. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Catch-Up, a Westwood Westwood podcast. I am your host, Teddy Tutson, here to get you up to speed on everything going down in the news this past week. We've got lots to cover this week, including leaks from the White House of the president's conversations with world leaders, the possible crackdown on the press as a result, plus the latest staff changes at the White House and attempts to bring discipline to a dysfunctional Oval Office, and the latest on Robert Mueller and his ever-expanding investigation on the president, his family, Russia, and everything else they could possibly be involved with. As always, you can check out more quality content from Westwood Westwood online at westwoodwestwood.com, on Facebook at Westwood Westwood online, or on Twitter at Reed Westwood. And remember to like, subscribe, and review the catch-up on iTunes. Show us some love, leave us some stars. All right, let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into it. The Washington Post recently obtained transcripts of two conversations that President Trump had with foreign leaders, one being Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto and the other being Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. These conversations happened about a week after Donald Trump was inaugurated, and if you remember at the time, we heard about the whole tough hombres thing when he was talking to the Mexican president, and we also heard that he had a very rough call with the Australian Prime Minister, that he hung up on him because he was frustrated, and they said, oh, he was just tired, it was the end of the day, and Donald Trump decried all this and said that it was fake news. Well, surprise! Turns out that all those reports were accurate, and whoa, boy, was that just the tip of the iceberg. It gets far Far worse from there, as the Washington Post lays out very clearly. One of the big takeaways is Donald Trump saying that the wall is, quote, the least important thing that we are talking about. The full quote is actually a little bit more revealing. He says, quote, believe it or not, this is the least important thing that we are talking about. But politically, this might be the most important talk about. I'm just reading the transcript verbatim. Do not get mad at me if it sounds like gibberish. The president has to talk about the wall because it's the most important thing that his base cares about. But he doesn't really give a shit about the wall at all. And he tells the Mexican president this straight out. But hold up. Because it's popular, somebody has to pay for this thing, right? Like, it still has to happen. So I can't really have you going around saying, I'm not paying for your fucking wall. And I know that's not you. I know that's your mans and them over there that be doing all them YouTube videos talking about you and your fucking wall. But I'm going to need you to cool it with that. Some more quotes from the President of the United States. The fact is, we are in a little bit of a political bind because I have to have Mexico pay for the wall. I have to. A little bit later on, he says, quote, We cannot say that anymore because if you are going to say that Mexico is not going to pay for the wall, then I do not want to meet with you guys anymore because I cannot live with that. President hit him with some Hall and Oates shit of, I can't go for that. No, oh, oh, oh. no can do. The President of the United States comes into the first meeting with the Mexican president and says, please stop saying out loud you aren't going to pay for the wall. You're making it hard for me to do my job, son. I got a lot of other things that make it hard for me to do my job, like an idiot son and another idiot son and an idiot family at large and the fact that I don't give a shit about most of the things that this job entails and the fact that this is also the same day that I rolled out my first travel ban. 
Yes, that's right. On the same day that the Trump administration issued its ban restricting the entry of refugees into the United States, Donald Trump was telling the Mexican president how screwed he was politically that he had to have someone pay for the wall and Mexico saying, well, it ain't gonna be me, damn it, wasn't helping him. But the headaches keep on coming for the White House after that. The next day, Donald Trump holds a bunch of calls with foreign heads of state. He talks to the Japanese prime minister, he talks to the French president, he talks to Putin, and he talks to Angela Merkel, the German chancellor. And then he gets around to talking to Australian prime minister Malcolm Turnbull. They talk about a 2015 agreement signed between the United States and Australia under President Obama in which the United States will vet and take refugees who have been imprisoned after trying to enter Australia by boat. Australia's got some super restrictive-ass policies when it comes to people coming to Australia by water. But new President Donald Trump is not feeling this agreement, saying that accepting these refugees, quote, will make us look awfully bad, and that the refugee deal is, quote, going to kill me. He also calls the agreement a, quote, stupid deal and says that it will make him, quote, look terrible. The Australian prime minister tries to explain to him the nature of the deal, why the deal was signed, why it's important, why the United States should uphold its agreement. At one point, prime minister Turnbull says, quote, this is a big deal. It is really, really important to us that we maintain it. It does not oblige you to take one person that you do not want. Finally, the president gets fed up and basically hangs up the phone, but not before saying, I have had it. I have been making these calls all day, and this is the most unpleasant call all day. Putin was a pleasant call. This is ridiculous. Prime Minister Turnbull says, hey, dog, do you want to talk about Syria and North Korea? And then Trump ends the conversation. That's it. I'm out this bitch. We done. You truly have to read the transcripts to fully appreciate just how crazy they are and how much they reveal about this president and his approach to foreign policy. But it's also kind of wild that this shit is even out there, which is why we saw Jeff Sessions on the warpath looking to crack down on leakers, whoever you are, wherever you are. I strongly agree with the president and condemn in the strongest terms the staggering number of leaks undermining the ability of our government to protect this country. Criminals who would illegally use their access to our most sensitive information to endanger our national security are in fact being investigated and will be prosecuted. Since January, the department has more than tripled the number of active leak investigations compared to the number pending at the end of the last administration. I have this message for our friends in the intelligence community. The Department of Justice is open for business, and I have this warning for would-be leakers. Don't do it. Don't do it, because Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice are coming for you. This isn't necessarily new territory for the Department of Justice because under the Obama administration, there were frequent criticisms of them targeting journalists, including one notorious case with James Rosen, where the Department of Justice went through his emails, his phone calls, because they thought that he was a co-conspirator. But given the way that President Trump has talked about the press and adjusting libel laws and going after people, you can see why people would be nervous about a Jeff Sessions-led crackdown on leaks leading to a broader crackdown on the press at large, especially when he's eager to get back in his boss's good graces. And speaking of those good graces, changes in the staff at the White House. As quickly as he arrived, he is exiting Anthony the Mooch Scaramucci gone as communications director at the White House. He came, he saw, he mooched. 
Scaramucci did the job that he was supposed to do, driving rights out of the White House and into the private sector. The new captain of the asylum, General John Kelly, a retired Marine who served as the commander of the U.S. Southern Command for four years under President Obama and was also commanding general in Iraq from 2008 to 2009. And so far, so good for the general. He is controlling who gets to talk to the president, what information comes to the president. If you're trying to talk to the president on the phone, guess who's on the line? General Kelly's there. If you're trying to drop some shit off from the president, say perhaps a Time Magazine cover that isn't real, guess who's going to drop it in the shredder in front of your face? General Kelly is. But the true tests are going to start for General Kelly as we get deeper into the summer, the dog days of August, as the Republican majority in Congress has done absolutely nothing. Nothing! Nothing. Run both branches of Congress and the White House, but not a damn thing to show for it. No health care reform. You barely got started on tax reform. You got Neil Gorsuch onto the Supreme Court. And, of course, the Russia sanctions bill that you put on the president's desk that he begrudgingly signed. It's only a matter of time before General Kelly suffers the same fate as everyone else who has tried to tame or otherwise let Trump be Trump. Eventually, the abyss stares back. And finally, shit continues to get real as Robert Mueller digs deeper and deeper into the connections between Donald Trump, his campaign, and Russia during the 2016 election a grand jury has been impaneled by Robert Mueller, and that grand jury has already issued subpoenas in connection with the June 2016 meeting, the infamous one that included Donald Trump Jr. and a Russian lawyer. Now, we don't necessarily know who got the subpoenas. We do know that Jared Kushner has not received a subpoena, nor had the White House. We got that information from a White House advisor speaking to the Washington Post. If you had to put your money down on somebody who got a subpoena, chances are you're looking at Don Jr. and Paulie Walnuts, a.k.a. Paul Manafort. Remember, this is the second grand jury to be impaneled as people continue to look into the connections between Donald Trump and his associates and the Russian government. The first was impaneled by federal prosecutors against Michael Flynn as they looked into his criminal investigation. That one was based in Alexandria, Virginia. This one by Robert Mueller is based in the capital, Washington, D.C. There are a lot of potential reasons as to why Mueller would impanel a grand jury in Washington, D.C., but who has time to worry about that when a CNN report indicates that federal investigators have seized on Trump and his associates' financial ties to Russia as one of the most fertile avenues for moving their probe forward. The report goes on to say that sources describe an investigation that has widened to focus on possible financial crimes, some unconnected to the 2016 election. How deep is the FBI going right now? How many rocks are they turning over? According to the report, the FBI is reviewing financial records related to the Trump Organization, as well as Trump, his family members, including Donald Trump Jr., and campaign associates. They've combed through the list of shell companies and buyers of Trump-branded real estate properties and scrutinized the roster of tenants at Trump Tower reaching back more than a half dozen years. And we know exactly what you and all your family members tip when you go out to eat. And if you're worried about Donald Trump firing Jeff Sessions as attorney general and trying to appoint somebody as a recess appointment who would then be willing to fire Robert Mueller and get around all of this, the Senate just made sure that can't happen. 
Do you remember how Republicans prevented Merrick Garland from being a recess appointment? They just kept the Senate open so that it was never officially adjourned, so that there could be no recess, so there could be no appointment. Well, we pulling the same trick out on your trifling ass, Donald Trump. No recess, no recess appointment. Jeff Sessions keeps his job. Run, tell, dat. Our guest on the catch-up this week is a man who's as hard-working as he is hilarious. You've seen him on Food Network's ginormous food and probably at some point on the road because he's been traveling all over the damn country telling jokes. This is our conversation with comedian Josh Denny. I am joined this week on the catch-up by the hilarious Josh Denny. You may have known him and seen him from the Food Network's ginormous food where he travels the country taking on the largest offering uh, that America's diners and such has to offer on. Glad to talk with him once again. It's been a while. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, man. How are you? I- I'm good. Thank you for uh, for coming on the show. Uh, congratulations on all the success with ginormous food. How's that been treating you so far? Thanks, man. How- it's been good. <laughs> How's <laughs> the mean, body holding up? Like success- yeah, I was going to say. Both, both, that, yeah. That question could go a couple <laughs> different ways. It's been fun success-wise, and then uh, it's funny. I, I talk about this now in my act a lot because it's amazing when you have a show like mine on TV how many people overnight become alarmed with your health. <laughs> and, you, you know, you know as well as I do that it's more of a virtue signaling than a genuine cause of concern for my health. But Right, yeah. Uh, but but good. I mean, you know, the funny thing is uh, you know, you've known me for, I think, like five, six years now, and uh, I wasn't an Olympian before this show started, so <laughs> my, my, fortunately for me, my body is pretty tempered to deal with the rigors of hosting a food show. Oh, I remember when I when I saw like the release and the announcement that this was the show that you were doing. I was like, "Yep, seems pretty seems pretty legit. Checks out." <laughs> seems like no if you, if, yeah if you had a concept and a performer that were sort of matched for each other of like josh just goes around uh chatting with people eating their big ass food and seeing what's up in their town yeah sounds yeah. sounds like a winner to me <laughs> yeah i tell people i tell people like that's basically what i used to do all the time recreationally they just started filming it <laughs> yeah right like, now i'm just monetizing it that's the american dream you know right exactly yeah um so you are on the more libertarian side of things on the the spectrum how yeah, and i and it's sort of like I, I sort of describe it to people as almost like an anarcho libertarian to where i'm so i'm so like live and let live that i i have my total regard for the government is just a, a less is more approach. So it's almost like the more we can tear out of it and the more we can allow people to kind of decide things for themselves, the better. Right. Like, I feel like if you say libertarian, you ca- you have to specify what kind of libertarian you are. You know what I mean? Like, are you, well, like, are are you like, well, free market can handle racism libertarian or are you just or you're like, I just want to smoke yeah. some weed in peace, man. Well, yeah. Well, and there's a lot of libertarian people that are essentially old school Republicans. Like, you know, they're. I, I saw a thing on the internet the other day, an, an interview that Clint Eastwood had done with Ellen many years ago, and he was like, you know, I'm, I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal, right, and um, right. you know, but it's funny because you find out like uh, <laughs> when people elaborate on that that they're not really socially liberal. They're just like. You know, the gays can do whatever they want as long as it's over there away right. from my children in, in <laughs> private. And it's like, yeah. well, that's not really social right. liberal. It's like, it's, it's like the whole NIMBY approach, you know, where it's like, yeah, absolutely. People should have affordable housing. All right, well, can we turn this high rise into, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you yeah, doing? Yeah, not in my neighborhood. What are you doing bringing all those Section 8 <laughs> people over here? Uh, yeah. 
Have you found that in this political climate that like when you're explaining libertarianism, what kind of skepticism do you get from people? Or depending on what you know, side of the political aisle they are, is it different from well, right versus left? By, yeah, you're kind of hated by everybody. Yeah, you have no because, friends, right? You, you. Are... Yeah, yeah, you just have no <laughs> politically. You have no allies and no friends because you know people on the left think you handed the election to Trump. And and I'm not a libertarian. I'm not one of these libertarians who votes Republican or Democrat. I mean, I, I voted libertarian because I believe in the in the policy, even if I wasn't crazy about our candidate. And that'd be um, Gary Johnson, right? Right, right. Yeah, I actually, I actually think they got the lineup backwards. I, I was going to ask you. Bill Weld, yeah, I think Bill Weld would have been a better candidate, um, but he was just, the, you know, he was way too far behind the eight ball uh, by the time he joined the campaign for that thing to get any legs. But I thought together they were, uh, you know, they were a good ticket. I just think they maybe got the ticket backwards. I think he he had a lot more political experience and a lot more respect in, you know, a pretty big state. And um, and I think they didn't do a good job of explaining the narrative of saying, you know, we are we are former Republicans, and this is why that platform doesn't work, and this is why being Democratic doesn't work. And and I think they could have done a much better job of that. And, they definitely could have done their homework more on foreign conflict because that was the death <laughs> blow for that can for that policy. Yeah, I think that, even uh, Weld campaign. when he when even Weld when he saw that clip from Morning Joe, he was like, "Oh my God, what did I sign up for?" You just killed us. <laughs> you killed. I mean, it, well, wasn't it was it by the end? Bill Weld was like, "Yeah, listen, uh, I don't know if I'm even going to support this ticket here. Like, if you're voting for Hillary, I get it. Like, even Weld was kind of like, yeah, we we yeah. we fucked up, guys. I'm sorry." <laughs> yeah, I mean, there he could have. I, I think he could have probably skid by with a pedophilia scandal better than that you know he could have been like listen i was a young guy she was 16 it was technically illegal i mean you could have talked your way out of that better than being like oh yeah I, you mean that a lesson? you mean the, the, I, the, I the great no humanitarian crisis of our time one of those top yeah. three things um, yeah could you imagine it'd be like back in world war ii and a campaign going he's like you mean uh, you mean nazi germany <laughs> <laughs> Wait, they occupied Poland? Get out of here. What? Yeah. I didn't know if you meant like Germantown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's also a place. Yeah, yeah. Have they are they safe? Do we know anything about yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> I, in a in a way libertarian and like the libertarian party is almost like a, a exit route for people who become disenfranchised with republican and republicanism and conservatism, you know. Do you, do you think that uh, third parties really have a chance? Because like now you've got what the Democratic Socialists of America. I think they do. I think they do going forward. I think the good thing to come out of this is people are going to be people are so disgusted with the way the system works now that uh, I do think people are going to be far more interested in what the alternatives are. And I, and I do think I do think the nice thing about a guy like Trump winning. And failing of the epic to the epic level that he is, <laughs> is that I think there are a lot of people that we would have loved to see run for president this time, who were like, nah, I, I don't want to do that. I would never put my family through that, or, or I think that's ridiculous. To now, I think their reaction is like, well, why the fuck can't I be president? You know, like I, you know, yeah, I, I saw a clip uh, with Oprah. Uh, you know, who she, her name's always bandied about as someone who runs for president. Same way Trump's was for like twenty years or whatever. You know. Right. And uh, I can't remember who was interviewing her, but she basically kind of said what you said where before she's like, you know, in the past, whenever someone brought that up, I was like, I don't want to go through that. And, you know, I got all, my, all this stuff and too much to disentangle. And I don't know if I'm qualified. And then I saw this and I was like, well, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I think you know, there are a I, lot I think, of people like that. 
Yeah, I think there are a lot of people, you know, like Mark Cuban's another one that I think a lot of people were like, why don't you run for president? And he was like, you know, well, I don't want to do it. I don't want to put my family through all that uh, being under the microscope and everything else. And and now it's sort of like, yeah, but if avoiding if avoiding the social fallout is the reason not to do it and you end up with the kind of president we have right now, I think people are going to be much more willing to make those personal sacrifices for the greater good. Yeah, and one of the issues I think that, uh, you know, there's probably a lot more common ground between the two parties is on sort of criminal justice reform, and specifically it's civil forfeiture, right? I mean, Jeff— Well, Kamala Harris is a perfect example. She's working with I mean, Rand Paul. Is that is that right on that bill? I, I'm not sure about that, but but I mean, you know, you, when you know her background, it's funny because I feel like a lot of people on the left look at Kamala and go, oh, she's great. It's a black woman, and that's what we want. Like, we want, from a social perspective, that's the direction we want to move as a party. And it's like, yeah, but she's also really tough on crime. Like, people forget she's a criminal she's, prosecutor. She's a prosecutor. She's got a, she's got a record that's going to be thoroughly examined if and when that yeah. time comes in a primary. Yes. And to be honest, that's and that's where people are really going to try to take her down because she is very right-leaning when it comes to things like gun control and, uh, and, um, and you know, criminal... Uh, sort of sentencing yeah, and the that prosecutorial stuff. stuff uh and i think there was she was also involved with the the raid on Backpage, um where they were you know took down some of those people who were just putting up ads and stuff so i mean she definitely has a lot of stuff uh that that's going to come with being a prosecutor i think the thing that i was talking about is her and Rand paul are working together on uh, bail reform uh mm-hmm. trying to to deal with mass incarceration but it seems like there are a lot of those sort of pairings happening on issues of bail and uh you know marijuana and drug sentencing and civil forfeiture and yet you have an administration that's going backwards with jeff session and talking about bringing back dare and doubling down on those things do do you think there's a chance for more republicans like Rand paul to have a greater say with a libertarian perspective in pushing back on that i I hope i mean i hope so i i do think i do think that um you know, I, this is my take on that. Some people look at a guy like Trump and they go, this is a guy, by all accounts, uh, probably is the first atheist president we've had. You know, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about religion. Well, since before um, the telegraph was invented, sure. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> before, you know, Jefferson made his own Bible, so I don't really know what he is. But, you know, and then also a guy who historically has been very liberal leaning with a lot of his points of view. So when you look at like what the, the Sessions thing, the Sessions appointment uh, was the largest head scratcher, as well as like the Trump, uh, the Pence pick for vice president. You go, why the fuck is he surrounding himself with uh, with all of these um, these super far leaning conservatives? And the bottom line is. I think boils down to getting elected, rallying the base, and then distracting people from what your real agenda is. So I think having a guy like Sessions freaking out about, you know, we, we want to put people in prison 20 years for an ounce of marijuana again, um, I think the general public reacts to that going like, is that really? I mean, is that really the fish we should be frying right now? We did, we didn't, we wanted to fix the economy. We're not trying to go back into the dark ages of social policy. And so I think you're getting a lot of those head-scratching moments. But, but I think the reason that a guy like Trump isn't speaking out against it is because you know, he's running his own agenda. I mean, he's in there to get the policies changed that will affect him for the remainder of his life and affect his business dealings, and that's it. I mean, he's using the office of the presidency to serve his own 
needs, and he really doesn't care about the, the social ramifications or the policy ramifications on the rest of the general public. So you think he's basically in office cashing in on the executive with the business deals and basically like backroom conversations the same way he, he's done the rest of his career, but now he has the, the White House using it. Exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a, no different than if Jimmy Hoffa became president in the <laughs> 60s or 70s, right? Yeah, yeah, basically. You know, I mean, it, it, you look at the sheer number of deals and the people using Trump Hotel, right? The number of like foreign dignitaries and stuff coming in and that whole thing. I mean, it's there's a, I, I think there's a level of shamelessness to it where oh, sure. you're kind of like, wow, I thought... Uh, I thought at least as Americans, we like wanted some level of discretion or facade, you know, Uh, but it seems like even that has been dispensed with. But I think that's good, too, because I think, you know, even on the far racist, right, conservative side, even those people understand that there's an incarceration problem in this country. There's a drug. There's an overreaction to drug prosecution in this country. I mean, those things affect people at the bottom of the, the class poll. Uh, on both sides of the racial spectrum. I mean, there, there's white trash in Alabama doing five years for, for small possession the same way they are, you know, people of color in inner cities doing the same amount of time. And so I think everybody understands there's this huge need for drug reform and that, you know, District Attorney Sessions, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, Attorney General Sessions has taken us back in time, you know? Do you think that civil forfeiture is one of those political issues that, uh, <laughs> even though it, it it sounds like it might be a difficult thing to get people to understand, they wrap their minds around it on a basic level because they have experienced it or their neighbors experienced it, right? Like, it's easy to sort of understand something of, the asshole sheriff stole my car because he could with no charges, you know? Right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, um, I think people want that and all, and all policies kind of dumbed down to the simplest form possible to, to be able to digest. I think when any legislature, any, any kind of uh, law changes become too complex for people, they just tune out. You know, it's it's sort of like watching a game show. And by the time the third or fourth layer of rules come in, you're just like, I, I'm going to change a channel. I can't figure out. <laughs> it's too complicated for me to understand. So I think simplifying a lot of things is, is what everybody on both sides wants. And, um, you, you know, think about the purpose of government in the first place. It was to kind of just have a simple set of guidelines to kind of keep us civil and to keep people, um, you know, from essentially robbing and killing each other. And, um, you know, now we're, we're, there's some people on both sides that want to lay in so much law that it's, it becomes complicated and, and, uh, and verbose. And, and the thing that, uh, the, the big thing with me as a libertarian is looking at both sides and going like, I'm tired of policy that is all about creating jobs inside the government and raising taxes. And both sides do it tremendously. I mean, Republicans talk about cutting out the fat and then there's, you know, instead of having welfare reform or welfare, uh, the welfare and pork barrel spending that they accuse the left of doing, they create all of these uh, justice positions and and we're going to crack down on drugs. And, and it's the same kind of pork barrel spending. It's just of what they think is morally um superior you know what i mean right no exactly and you know i think one of the things too is the area of uh with food uh there's been a lot of talk in recent years about how the fda doesn't necessarily have like the things that they can regulate they aren't the things that they should be regulating you know like there's there's like it's about the mission and the effectiveness 
Uh, well, the FDA's role has become protecting uh, large pharmaceutical companies' uh, financial assets. As I opposed mean, to FDA, actually saying, hey, quit putting shit in the food that isn't good. You know? Sure, yeah. So the fact that the FDA prevent, uh, prevents vitamin, like, I can't remember the document that I watched many years ago, but, you know, essentially the FDA prevents a lot of these things that we take as supplements from becoming prescribed medications and prescribed routes of, of improving health, um, they spend more time on that than keeping chemicals out of the food we eat. I mean, that's absurd. So, you know, essentially they're about policing large, uh, protecting the assets of large industry, you know, the Monsantos and the Pfizer's of the world. They're protecting shareholder assets versus protecting the general health of American citizens. And to be honest, you know, uh, then the, that raises the moral question of, do we really need that? Or is there enough information out there for people to make their own decisions? Now, I could understand you would need a governing body back in 1955 when, if it wasn't on television, 99% of the American people <laughs> didn't know about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, if there was if there was mercury in the fish, that would have needed to have been on the news, and somebody would have needed to do something about that to make sure that it stopped. Now... Uh, and people can make those decisions on their own if that's something that interests them, concerns them. They can go to the internet, they can watch a documentary, they can read a, read some articles, and make a decision on how to how to proceed with that information. So really, when you strip that pro- that um, purpose of the FDA away, now they only exist as an entity to protect uh, financial assets of large corporations. Should the government be paying for that? Not at all. Right. So that's where the libertarian side of me comes in and says, just get rid of it. I think I understand where you're coming from with, with there's a lot of information and people can, can educate themselves about it. And, and I think we were, we were talking a little bit before the show about what the health I think is, is the current documentary du jour that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, and some of the claims that it's making. I think the one problem is, and this I think is touched on one of your points about, uh, what the health is that, that information isn't necessarily accurate itself, and it's also hard sometimes, even if you are researching, where there's things like hidden sugars or companies aren't necessarily compelled to disclose full ingredients, so you aren't even well, getting the, the full that, perspective, right? Someone, yeah, and, and someone the, has to be an accountability mechanism to, to try to vet these things. Well, yeah, exactly, and, and um, you know, the thing about, but then you get into the free speech side of it, too, right? So, you know, but I think that the, the thing that annoys me about what the health is, it is social responsibility, or it's disguised as social responsibility, but there's a clear-cut agenda in the beginning of that thing. I mean, it, when you're 10 minutes into a documentary and they say, you know, eating one egg is the equivalent of five cigarettes, and, uh, <laughs> you know, salmonella deaths are equivalent in the world to seven nine eleven you're doing the same thing that the right is doing when they say, you know, Hillary Clinton sponsored a Saudi Arabia bar mitzvah, which means she rapes and murders children. But like, it's these Is that, is that a claim that salmonella connections. deaths, do they really equate salmonella deaths <clears throat> on a 9-11 scale? They, they, yes, they, they use, they use 9-11 <laughs> as a metric. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, like, it's, metric like it's a Scaramucci or something? What is it? <laughs> yeah, there's literally a doctor on this documentary that says, 3,000 people die in the U.S. every year from salmonella poisoning, uh, which is more than the 9-11 tragedy, and 21,000 people die worldwide. And he's like, so that's seven 9-11s. He goes, could you imagine uh, if there was was a terrorist group out there that committed seven 9-11s? He's like, we'd go get them. So I go, so you want the military (laughs) – 
to grab machine right. guns and run into beef cattle farms and treat them like ISIS. And to like, process meat, like to, to run up in Oscar Mayer and... Well, the problem is that the conversation goes from processed meat to all meat very quickly in the documentary. And as much as I'd like to think that people are smart enough to go, this is clearly a vegan documentary with the intention of um, of, of converting people to a plant-based diet... Um, I think a lot of people look at these these docs now and they go, well, they show studies and they show facts. So this is all real and this is all true. And, um, you know, while there's a part of me that's like, if you're that stupid, you deserve to fuck up your health. <laughs> there's the other part of me that is like, this is what's contributing to the problem in America is that, you know, people are allowed to present misinformation um, and there's nobody stepping up going, like, you can't do that. Like, there's a difference between free speech right. and misleading the general public you know, with skewed facts. And I think that's where it, it is important to have a general data set. And some entity has to do it. And we've seen that, you know, like you said, there are some things the government uh, does well, some things they don't. But in terms of collecting robust data sets that can then be disseminated to researchers and the general public to be like, hey, look at this and let's figure out what's going on and let's solve problems. The government has done a pretty good job about putting data together, you know. Uh, well, and that's where I think it, you, you need something like that to push back on free-flowing bullshit, for lack of a better term. Right. Well, hey, man, thank you so much for uh, for joining me this week as well. Been a pleasure chatting with you, dude. What do you have coming up that uh, people can see you on the road or you got the plug? All that good jazz. Yeah, man. well, as always, we've got the darkest hour every month in uh, in California at Westside Comedy Theater, second Friday of every month, which is a fun stand-up show. Great show. And then, yes. uh, for, for, yeah, for all my dates and everything, people can just check out uh, my website, joshjennycomedy.com. We'll be filming some more episodes of Ginormous Food in Atlanta next week. And then uh, as far as the rest of the year goes, I'm not sure yet. So people should just stay tuned on social media and keep an eye peeled. There'll be some fun stuff coming. We just don't know exactly what and exactly when. So, And I'm still trying to work on getting a special done this year. So we'll see if we get to do that as well. You're a busy man. Uh, are you on Twitter or Facebook? Where can they look Yeah, you Twitter, Facebook, Josh Denny Official on Facebook, and then at Josh Denny on Twitter and Instagram. All right, man. Awesome. Thank you very much, Josh, for uh, for joining thank me you. today, man. And take it easy. And be sure to check out Ginormous Food on Food Network. Thanks, Teddy. Yeah, man. Thank you, bro. Appreciate it, man. Great talking with you, dude. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of The Catch-Up. Special thanks again to our guest comedian, Josh Denny, for coming on the show. Be sure to check out Ginormous Food on the Food Network. And as always, please remember to like, subscribe, review, and share the catch-up on iTunes. If you got anything that you want us to cover in any of our episodes coming up, be sure to holler at me on Twitter, at Teddy Tutson. That's T-E-D-D-Y-T-U-T-S-O-N. And as always, check out quality content from Westwood Westwood online at westwoodwestwood.com. Westwood Westwood online on Facebook and on Twitter at Reed Westwood. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Catch-Up with Teddy Tutson, a Westwood Westwood podcast.